we have three sermons left in this series, um, and, and most of what we have been covering is the conquest of this land. God promised his people that he would give them uh, this land. And so there were three military campaigns. The first was the central, then they headed south, and then they went north. They conquered all of those places, all those cities and all those lands for the most part. Um, and so the, the book of Joshua, we, we like to do this at New City. We look at the whole book in one, one take there. The book of Joshua is almost a half or a third battles and, and probably just about half uh, land allotment. So um, we're doing something maybe a little foolish today, but like we spent maybe six or seven Sundays getting through that red section. I'm going to try to tackle that whole green section in one sermon. So tip, tip your uh, nursery workers well. We might be here for a while. <laughs> no, we don't do tips here. I'm just kidding. But, um, but I'm not kidding about we might be here for a while. No, I'll, I'll do my best. I'll do my best um, to get through this. It's not as though that's less important th- uh, than the battles, but you, you know, some pieces of scripture read differently. So, so what we're going to tackle today is, um, for the most part, the, 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 the place has been conquered, minus a couple pockets here and there. We're going to walk through what was it like when God handed out the land. Here you have hundreds of thousands of people who've been wandering for 40 years. They just won the battles that God gave them. And now it's time for the spoils of war. It's time for their rewards. They get a home. They get, they get a, a place to live. So um, <clears throat> this is kind of the land we're going to be talking about here. And these are the, how, how, how it divvied out amongst the 12 tribes. So um, the book of Joshua is, is called the book of the land. It's probably the most geographical book in, in your whole Bible. And if you like maps, it's the perfect book for you. Um, however, this section of scripture, Joshua chapters 13 through 22, would be a strong contender for uh, the most boring uh, passages of scripture to read through in all the Bible. And I say that in a superficial way. If you're just plugging along in Joshua, you're like, wow, this is very interesting. It's like watching a movie. There's all these battles and these miracles and it's amazing. And then you, get, then you hit Joshua 13, uh, 14, 15, and 16, and it starts reading like this. We're not gonna go through all these chapters, uh, but I'll, I'll give you a, just like a, a sample of it. Uh, the boundary goes from there to the sea. On the north is Michmetheth. Then on the east of the boundary turns around toward Tanith Shiloh and passes along beyond it, etc., etc. Now we get to the cities of Benjamin, Jericho, Beth Hogla, Emek Kezis. I didn't practice these at all. Beth, Beth Areba, right, right? This is, it's one of those parts of the Bible. And I'm not saying it's, it's unimportant. In fact, part of my, my hope today is to show you that even this, even this is God's word and there's something here for us. But it would, it, this, this would, this, these 10 chapters would contend for the most boring places that you could read. If, you're, if you don't know anything about the Bible, if you don't know what you're reading, the, the hardest places, 10 chapters you could read in the book. And yet... There's, there's, a, there's a, something that happens often when somebody uh, is a young person growing up in poverty and, they, and then they make it. They, get, they, get their, they make their first million or they make a lot of money. One of the first things they do is they'll buy their mother a house or they'll, you know, put, put your mom in a, in a beautiful new mansion. You've heard this story. Many athletes do this. Rock stars do this. They buy their mom a house. Now imagine you're that, that person that, that, that made it and is buying your mother a house. How would you show her the house? Would you just throw the keys at her like, here you go, enjoy it? I bet you wouldn't do that, unless you're like trying to be cool about it or something. You know what you would do? You would take her by the hand and you'd walk her through that whole house. Look, 
Look, mom, look at, the, look at the living room. You'd walk around the living room. You may do this when you, when you, when you bought your first, if you, ever, if you ever owned a home and you bought your first house, you just kind of walk around. And I did this when I bought, we bought ours. I was like, I can't believe it. I have a garage. I have a yard. I get to mow this yard. And fast forward 15 years later, it's like, oh, I have to mow the yard, right? But when you, but, but imagine that scene, just taking your mom by the hand. Look, mom, look at this kitchen. You don't have to do this anymore. Look at this. This is all taken care of. That is what this passage is. God has been promising and promising. And now today we get to do this. We get to he take us by the hand metaphorically and he's gonna walk us through the beautiful thing that he promised. We actually did a version of this at Christmas with my mother. She's the best gift giver. She, she helped take us to, to Disneyland this year, or Disney World this year. And so we thought we'd be generous back. And we actually all pooled our money together and got her the Barbara Streisand uh, biography, that book. <laughs> and I, I walked her through the table of contents. I'm like, look, mom, look at all these chapters. You can read all of them. This is when Babs was on Broadway. And this, this, this. I'm just kidding. I just don't have a story you can relate. But the fake story that I told you, that's what we're doing today. He's taking him by the hand and he's saying, look, look at this. And you might not know many of these geographical, you don't know that river, you don't know that city. But what's happening here would have been of, of, of utmost importance and beauty to them because they know that. And guess what? That's their new home. They've been wandering. We all want a place to belong and a place to be safe and a place to live. And so even though this chapter reads funny and we're going to cover just a ton of stuff, um, it's a really beautiful thing and it meant a lot to these people and it should tell us something uh, about, about God and, and how he treats his people. So um, I don't often preach like this or do outlines like this, but here's how we're going to tackle it today. It's just a huge swath of scripture, so I don't have an outline per se. I just want to show you that even in the most 10, possibly most boring chapters in all of scripture, uh, it's God's word still. Here are seven lessons that I learned in, in, in maybe the most boring section of scripture. What comes after my life? What is my inheritance from God? How should I retire? What makes a good leader? What kind of book is the Bible? Why do I need reminders? And what kind of God is God? I'm sure there are many more lessons, but I'm dense. Those, I only got to seven. But even, even this, even this passage of scripture, I learned all of these things. So, so a lot of these we're going to go through quickly. One or two I'm going to spend a little, a little more time on. Um, so let's, let's, look at, let's look at the first one which is what comes after my life. So one of the very first things we run into in this passage is that, as I said, the land was mostly conquered. Um, the mo emphasis on the mostly, because the first thing in the, when we're dispersing land is this. Now Joshua was old and advanced in years. The Lord said to him, you are old and advanced, and there remains yet very much land to possess. This is the land that yet remains. And then it goes on. I didn't include the whole text. But it's funny, when we get to the part where we're divvying out the gifts, you would think that's when the work is done. And it still is not. It's a strange thing about this book, which is that some tribes would get land and they would still need to conquer people who were living on that land. So um, just a couple examples. And again, we're not going like beat for beat here, but, um, but even in, in the city of Jerusalem, they could not drive out the Jebusites in jo Joshua 15. And that really doesn't happen until the time of David. So there are still, by the time David's king, there's still these enemies living there. The Danites have a heck of a time trying trying to conquer their very little uh, uh, property that, that they got. Here's, here's another instance. Caleb goes to um, attack some cities in the middle of the, of the country, and then uh, he, he has to recruit help to uh, tackle these cities. Um, so 
to, to, this is one of the ones we're not going to spend too long. What comes after my life? One of the things that this book is a picture of is that God's plan does not hinge on any one mortal person. Joshua is just one man in a line of men that God has raised up. God promised Abraham that he would give him this land. And then he raised up a Moses. And then he raised up a Joshua. There's a neat little Easter egg in Joshua 15, which is, you remember Caleb. Caleb was the other faithful spy. He, uh, he, he sort of puts out this call. Anybody can conquer uh, this place. And I'll, I'll give my daughter to you in marriage. The person that does this, his name is Othniel. Does anybody know who Othniel is? A little Bible trivia for you. Where's my Jeffries kids? They know. Um, Othniel is the first judge of Israel. That's the next book in your Bible. That's the next phase, the next thing that's going to be happening. That's Caleb's son-in-law. Did you know that? So what happens, what happens after my life? The answer to that is the next generation. It shows you the bigness of God's plan. He has this all worked out on the scale of eternity. And you get maybe 70, maybe 80 years to be a part of that. And so when they come to the promised land, there is no sense of, all right, it's done. We've arrived. No, they are fitting into this bigger picture of what God is doing. The next generation is coming. All right, what, what is my inheritance from God? This is where we're going to spend a, a lot of our time. Um, so this is the land. And... When, when you're reading about what the borders of the tribes are, it's, it is painful. Um, but there is a story behind those names and what's going on. And, and some of you, this is, this is maybe basic, but others you might not know. So the reason that there's 12 tribes and 12 divisions of land, that comes from Jacob and his 12 sons. Jacob was later named Israel, and he had 12 sons. This is the, sort of starting the fulfillment of Abraham's promise that, that he, would, he would be numerous, that he would have many, many descendants and, and, and sons. So, so we don't have time to retell that story. It's a, it's a huge family story. Someday I hope to do a whole sermon series just on that, one, on that one family. But what's happening in our story is each tribe, these, these men are dead, but the, their descendants, they, they, they grew and grew and they formed these tribes. Each tribe is getting their piece of land. Now you gotta do a little bit funny math here and I'll, I'll tell you why, why 12 actually equals 13 sort of in, in the Bible. Um, but but we'll, start, we'll start with, you see the Jordan River that goes from the Sea of Galilee to the Dead Sea. Um, the, the tribes on the, on the eastern side of that asked for that land before they got into the promised land. And they did that because east of the Jordan, it's, it's good for cattle. So um, the, in, in, in our time, text, the order in which the, the land is given is, is really important, and the land itself is really important. So I just did like a little baseball card, like just real brief so you know, we're, we're not going to belabor every son of, of Jacob or, or whatever, but Reuben was the firstborn in Israel. He's one of the, the, the people that requested uh, land on the other side. He's the firstborn, which means he should have been in a position of honor. He should have got a double portion, but he, 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 was, a, he was a disgrace to the family for some of his personal sins, and so he kind of gets relegated to the other side of the river. Um, oh, I've also put like fame, favorite sons in there. So if, again, these are just characters in the Bible. Like, so Hosea was a Reubenite. That means he comes from that, that line. Um, and it's mostly cattle. Agad, same, uh, same situation. He's on the east side. It's a battle tribe, which makes sense because that's the tribe facing the Babylonians and the Assyrians. The Gadites were known as warriors. Elijah was a Gadite. And then um, here's where the math gets kind of funny. The tribe of Manasseh gets two pieces of land. It's sometimes called the half tribe of Manasseh because it splits the river. 
Joseph uh, was so, such a magnanimous character. He basically ascends to the role of firstborn son. So he gets two of his sons get to be tribes in, in all of Israel. And then the Levites take on a, a special role. So Manasseh gets, Manasseh gets two, two portions of it. And then and in, in our text, they just deal with the Eastern tribes first. It's like, all right, you guys aren't, you, it's basically, it's kind of like Ankeny East of the interstate. It's still technically Ankeny, but we don't really consider it. It's like, it's like all right, well, let's figure that out first and now let's get to Ankeny, you know, or, or like Alaska and Hawaii. It's like, yes, they're part of it, but they're, it's different, right? So in, in our text, they sort of get that part out of the way. And now the order and the land, and the land uh, starts to matter. And Judah was the fourth born uh, kid, but he actually, when they draw lots, they meet in the temple, the priest does this. So this is, again, it's, it might be boring to you. This was worship for them. This was a worshipful experience. So when they start drawing lots, because they want God to be fair, they want God to have a decision, Judah gets the biggest chunk of land. And, and, and if you know your Bible, you know that out of Judah comes the Messiah, the kingly, the kingly tribe. And it's not because the person of Judah was an outstanding or upstanding person. Actually, there's two accounts, two stories of him failing greatly. But in both of those stories, he was humble and repentant and then redeemed himself by conf confessing sin and, and changing his heart. And so God honors this tribe uh, by, by, by having this be the line of Christ. So David is a Judite. Judahite, uh, Solomon, Mary, Jesus, they all come from this tribe. And that land is the first described, it's the most detailed, and it's the biggest land. Any kind of terrain is in that land. They've got desert and coastline and plains and mountains. It's just, it's giant. It's, 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 it's an enormous, and it's the first portion. God honored that tribe. Ephraim is, is the other son of, of uh, 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 Joseph's. They get the sort of the Midwest. Um, Joshua is, a, is from the tribe of Ephraim, and this is sort of the heartland. This is right in the middle. Um, Manasseh gets their, their west side portion again. Um, and then it goes to Benjamin. Um, why is Benjamin next? It, 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 this might make you feel uncomfortable if you have a modern sensibility, but in the Bible, sons uh, uh, or the kids in the family are definitely those favorites and there's not, there's not favorites, right? The story of Jacob sort of ends with him blessing some of his kids and cursing some. So if you don't like favoritism, you're just going to get offended. The, the order of this, the order of this is, is, is for a reason. God is giving certain tribes for first dibs and certain tribes last dibs, and it reflects the, the people in the tribe. So Benjamin, probably like, like many of your families, he was the very youngest, and so he was much beloved. He was, he was uh, one of Rachel's two, two sons. Um, many people come from the tribe of Benjamin, including uh, the apostle Paul in the New Testament. Benjamin is important. It doesn't get a lot of land, but it's sort of the crossroads of everything. It divides the north and the south, and it's where Jerusalem and the temple will be. The rest of these we can rock it through pretty quick because they are sort of insignificant, or I shouldn't say totally insignificant, but they're not as, as important. Simeon was a disgraced secondborn, and so his allotment is all, all he gets are a few cities in the middle of Judah. Uh, he, he, he hardly gets anything when, when the land is divvied out. Zebulun, um, weirdly, is associated with the sea in the very few passages that we read about him. It, uh, Jonah was from the tribe of Zebulun, and yet the, it's, it's a landlocked country. So I don't know if this is just a joke in the Bible or what, but that's, that's Zebulun. Issachar is associated with farming and tent living, and, and uh, um, uh, he, he has farmable land. It's a very small portion. But again, now we're getting into the characters like, let's go around and everybody fav share your favorite Issachar story. 
right? Like these just weren't the prominent sons of Israel. Asher, supposedly this land is very beautiful. He was Leah's youngest through a, through a maidservant and that's very beautiful coastal, coastal land, but uh, again, just kind of a sliver. Um, Naphtali, we don't know hardly anything about him. He gets the region around the Sea of Galilee. Um, Dan, uh, Samson was a Danite. We know next to nothing about Dan. He never speaks in the whole Bible. He gets this little strip. It, it, they can't conquer it. It's not enough. And so if you see that, that little, little blue dot up at the top of the, of the map, they basically end up just forfeiting their, their uh, territory and moving up, up top. And now we get to Levi. So Levi's the third born, and we've already, got, we've already dispersed 12 pieces of land. So, we've got, so we've, got, we've got this 13th brother. If Joseph gets two, we've got a math problem. So what God did with the Levites is he said, one tribe is going to be different. They're going to be the priests. They're going to do all the religious things. They're going to handle the tabernacle. They're going to work in the temple. And so God did not give them any territory, but he gave them places to live. He gave them cities of refuge and a couple other cities. Favorite sons, Moses, Aaron, obviously were, were, were Levites. But I noted something, and this is, this is the last piece on, on this point. I noticed something. Every other tribe got basically their land. Here's your land. Here's your cities. Um, next, right? In, in, in the text, again and again, it keeps reminding us Levi is different. The tribe of Levi is different. And if you're not relating to this right now because you're like, well, God's never given me a huge chunk of land and a bunch of acres, that would be nice. The Levites are the tribe that you're supposed to be reading and saying, ah, I see, this is what my inheritance is. Again and again, for right now, uh, the Levites don't get any land. It says in, in Joshua 13, to the tribe of Levi alone, Moses gave no inheritance. The offerings by fire to the Lord God of Israel are their inheritance. Let me translate that. The, the Levites got to eat in the temple. So God was gonna provide them with food. Joshua 14, no portion was given to the Levites in the land, only cities to dwell in. So they don't get big properties and big farms. They just get a place to live. So what has God provided for the Levites? Something to eat, some place to live. Joshua 18, the priesthood of the Lord is their heritage. They don't get land, but they have a job, something to eat, somewhere to live, and a job to do. And then Joshua 13 says this, to the tribe of Levi, Moses gave no inheritance. The Lord God of Israel is their inheritance. And if we're keeping track, that's the best one. And in the New Testament, it says that we are, we, the people who follow Jesus are a new priesthood and that our inheritance is exactly the same as that of the Levites. We're not serving in a literal temple. But what, what, what God's design was, he, he dispersed these Levites to 48 total cities all throughout the land so that, so that wherever you live, somewhere there would be somebody who could teach you the Bible, somebody that was a holy man that, could, that would work in the temple. And so their inheritance is they get food, a job, a place to live, and they get the Lord himself. 1 Peter 1.3 says, according to his great mercy... He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. This is where I want to talk to you about the gospel. The promise of the Bible is this, that we are all sinners. We don't deserve this land, and neither did the people who got it back in the Old Testament. But that you, as an inheritance from God, can have a relationship with God himself if you believe in Christ, if you turn to the cross in faith and, and, and ask for forgiveness, that your inheritance is, he'll give you a place to, he'll give you a job to do. He'll give you a place to live. He'll take care of your basic needs. God cares about those little details. And also you get God himself. You get to know God. There's much more to your inheritance, but that's, that's, that's where we'll leave it at right now. So what is my inheritance from God? God's going to take care of me 
and he's gonna give me him very, his very self. Okay, moving onward, how should I retire? So in Joshua chapter 14, we have the story of Joshua and Caleb were the only two spies uh, when they were wandering in the wilderness to actually be faithful. They saw that group of giants and those big Canaanites and they said, God can do it. All the other spies were scared and God tacked on 40 years to their wandering, right? So at the very end, Caleb has not been a part of this story uh, hardly at all. He's not a character that just gets mentioned uh, with any kind of frequency. But in Joshua 14, he gets to basically make his, he's an old man, he gets to make his claim on what he gets in the promised land as an individual. So he's, a, he's, a, he's from the tribe of Judah, so he got first pick, he's the oldest man there, um, and he's probably the most respected. So basically, the, he gets the very, he should have the very first pick of any one individual in the whole promised land. This is, this is Caleb talking. I was 40 years old when Moses, the servant of the Lord, sent me from Kadesh Barnea to spy out the land, and I brought him word again as it was in my heart. But my brothers who went up with me made the heart of the people melt, yet I wholly followed the Lord my God. And Moses swore on that day, saying, surely the land of which your foot has trodden shall be an inheritance for you and your children forever, because you have wholly followed the Lord my God. And now behold, the Lord has kept me alive, just as he said, for 45 years, since the time that the Lord spoke this word to Moses, while Israel walked in the wilderness. And now behold, I am this day 85 years old. I am still as strong today as I was in the day that Moses sent me. My strength now is as my strength was then for war and for going and coming. So now give me, and I haven't printed it yet because I want to pause here. He just gave you his resume. And it's impressive. He's one of two guys that was faithful in all of Israel. And he's fought for 45 years so that he could have just a little, a little piece of retirement. So I now want to talk to you. If you are within 10 years of retirement or if you're retired yourself, this is your lesson. You didn't know that would be found in these boring chapters, did you? How should you retire? Okay, so the, mo the, the most honored man there, maybe just second to Joshua himself, he gets first pick. He just gave you his resume. Do any of us have a problem with him going first? Any of us in this room? No, he should be honored, right? He, he's a faithful guy. He's the, the most faithful, actually. If you were asked that same question, all right, first pick, what would you pick? What in Israel would you pick? Would you pick that beautiful coastline <laughs> and you would retire at the beach? Would you do that? I would be tempted. Would you do something for your kids? There's a lot of fertile valleys in that, in that Midwest, in that middle part. Would you get a lot of farmland so that you would set your kids up to be wealthy for, for, for many generations? Would you ask for that? What would you ask for in retirement? Let's look at what he asks for. All right, I've done all this stuff. So now give me this hill country of which the Lord spoke on that day. For you heard on that day how the Anakim were there with great fortified cities. It may be that the Lord will be with me and I shall drive them out just as the Lord said. So Caleb does not ask for any of those things I just said. He wants one city. And we will learn later, if you keep reading, we learn that he asks for the city of Hebron. That's, that's what he wants. And did you hear there that he said there are still Anakim in that city? So it, it, for his retirement, after 45 years of battle, he doesn't ask for a medal. He doesn't ask for a cush inheritance. We would all in this room say he deserves that. You know what he asked for? One of the hardest cities yet to be conquered. Do you remember that the Anakim are this tribe of giants? That, 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 that Joshua in the southern campaign kind of ran out of some of their cities, but apparently there are still some in Hebron. And so Caleb, as an 85-year-old man, says, give me that city. I want the hardest city. 
And then he even says, <laughs> he says, it may be that the Lord will be with me and I shall drive them out just as the Lord said. Isn't that a remarkable way to retire? What do you want at the end of life? When, 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 you're, when you're just about done, right? When you're ready to hang it up. You know what Caleb said? He said, give me the hill. Give me the hill because he's a servant of the Lord. And even then, even at this point, he doesn't say, give me the hill because by golly, I'm Caleb. I've, I've overseen every single victory. Even at the end, he says, give me the hill and who knows, maybe God will bless me again. Isn't that awesome? Isn't that beautiful? Now, let me talk to you if you're not retirement age. That, that ask, that give me another fight. I'm still in it. I still can serve. I still can do it. That, that muscle um, was built up with, for Caleb over decades and decades. How, how is it that an old man can ask for a fight in his old age? Well, it, it's helped if he's been fighting in his younger years, right? He didn't just get brave. He didn't just get brave at the very end and say, I'm going to do this big, bold thing. That's who he was. So to people who are nowhere near retirement, here's my challenge to you. Can you identify a hill, a fight, a battle that you are on for the Lord? Are you like Caleb and like Joshua and saying, God, wherever you want me, wherever the conflict is, wherever you would have me serve, I'll do it. And then to my, to my near retired or retired people, are you asking for the hill? Do you want the giant? Give me the giants. I know that's going to be a problem. I'll take Hebron. So the answer to the question, how should I retire? You should retire by taking the hill. All right, next question. What makes a good leader? So Caleb gets to pick first. Nobody should have a problem with that. Look at this though. Joshua 19, when they'd finished distributing the several territories of land as inheritances, the people of Israel gave an inheritance among them to Joshua, the son of Nun. By the command of the Lord, they gave him the city that he asked, Timnath Sarah, in the hill country of Ephraim, and he built the city and settled in it. So Caleb went first. Guess who went last? Joshua. And that's what a good leader does. That's what a good, good leaders eat last. And he, he gets this city and it's a really cool, another cool Easter egg in your Bible. Then the literal name of the city is portion of the sun. He names the city after the greatest miracle he was ever a part of that day on the battlefield where he commanded the sun to stand still and God did it. And it says in your Bible that only happened one time. God only let one man do this. And that was his inheritance. So what makes a good leader? The one who eats last. Okay, what kind of book is the Bible? We're going to go through these fairly quickly. There's a strange story that it's mostly land borders in, this, in these 10 chapters, but there is little pockets of narratives. There's this strange story where the daughters uh, of a man named Zelophehad, I hope I'm saying that right, Zelophehad, um, have a problem and they come to Joshua um, and they say, hey, our father didn't have any sons. It's just five daughters, but we don't want to lose land. Will you give us the land? So I just thought this was a funny quirk story because we've talked a lot about some of the things that would be problematic in this, bio, in this, in this story. There's some violence in here that the modern people are uncomfortable with and God's judgment. And, and, and then I find this story, which is like, there's no way that in ancient times, women are going to be deeded land. And yet Joshua says, sure, that's, that's fine. You just need to marry. You, if you get married, you need to marry somebody within your tribe and then the land will stay within your tribe. So this is not a profound insight. I had to get to seven somehow. Um, but uh, uh, what kind of book is the Bible? At the least, we would say it's unexpected. 
And it, it rejects this easy categorizing. You can't, you can't really uh, put it in a bucket very easily. So people who would look at the word and say, ah, it's regressive, it's, it's ancient, we, don't, we, should, we ought not to take it literally or too seriously. The Bible is not quite that simple, right? Buried in the middle of this book is, is um, God granting five adult women land, which doesn't scandalize you, but would have scandalized everybody back then, right? And, and so it's not, it's not easy. The Bible is, is not easy to categorize and the stereotypes aren't always true. The other thing that's, that's, that is far more important about the Bible is many of the scholars that I read say that these three verses in Joshua 21, at the very end of all the land getting dispersed, essentially summarize the point of the whole book. <clears throat> Thus the Lord gave to Israel all the land that he swore to give to their forefathers, They took possession of it, they settled there, and the Lord gave them rest on every side. Just as he had sworn to their fathers, not one of all their enemies had withstood them. For the Lord had given all their enemies into their hands. And listen to this, not one word of all the good promises that the Lord had made to the house of Israel had failed. All came to pass. And if you wanted a literal translation of of that, not one word of his good promises had failed, it actually means not one of them fell or hit the ground. What kind of book is the Bible? What kind of task was God calling the people of Israel to do? He was calling them to, do, to believe ridiculous things. That, that, a, that an army that had been camping and wandering for 40 years could be the most powerful uh, uh, coalition of, of people groups in all the world. But at the end of the story, what's happened? God gently here says, remember my promises? Not one fell on the ground. Who else can you say that about? Could, could we ever say that about you or me? Not one thing Adam said fell on the ground. I feel like 50% of the things I say fall on the ground. I try, I'm, I'm, I try to make commitments. I try to let my yes be yes and my no be no, but it's so hard. Only God can say everything I tell you is 100% right. Not one word of mine will fall to the ground. So what is the Bible? What kind of book is it? It's unpredictable. It's hard to categorize. It's hard to read sometimes. What other kind of book is it? It's a book you can give your whole life to. You can trust the words of God because they do not fall on the ground. And if you, need, if you want an example of that, it's the time that God promised uh, his son Abraham he would, give them, uh, 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 he would give him land and a nation. And there were many times in that story where it felt like the words of God had fallen to the ground. When Abraham's wife Sarah dies and they're, they're burying people in the promised land because the only portion of that promised land he owns is a graveyard, a little cemetery plot it sort of probably felt like the words of the Lord had fallen. When they were slaves in Egypt for generations, you could be excused for murmuring in that, in that community, well, I guess it didn't come true. I guess the word fell through. And now in this chapter, in these chapters, we get to read God taking his people by the hand saying, look, I told you I would, I would be good for it. I told you I would give you a land. I told you I would give you a home. Not one single word fell. So what kind of book is the Bible? It's a trustworthy one. Last two, and we'll go quick. Why do I need reminders? Here's another funny story. Those, those Eastern tribes that we'll say they're like the ones on the other side of the interstate for Ankeny. At the end, at the end, it's time for everybody to go home. And so the Eastern tribes leave and something occurs to them as they're gonna cross the river. They think we're gonna be in trouble in a, in a generation or two if, if, if people don't tell the story of, of us being over here. They're gonna look at this river and say, those people are not Israel. That's not the promised land. So what they do is they build an altar right at the river. 
Now, this gets misinterpreted by all the, uh, the nine and a half other tribes. They think, oh, geez, we just got all the land dispersed and now they're worshiping uh, Canaanite gods. They just converted to paganism. The, the, the temple or the tabernacle at this time is in Shiloh. That's where the worship is supposed to be. And here, these Eastern tribes have built this other, this other uh, um, uh, altar. So there's an altercation. It's, 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 a, tense, it's a tense situation because at the very beginning of this country, we could have a civil war. So the, the Western tribes send this delegation to the Eastern tribes and basically say, we don't have the time, but they basically say, what in the world are you doing? What in the, wasn't it enough when Achan sinned and many people died? Are you going to do this again? Are you going to worship the Canaanite gods? And they say, no, 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 no. We have not built this altar to worship uh, any other God. We will not even worship our God at this altar. We built, we built this as a reminder to what God has done as a memorial and it, 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 at the very end of it, it says, the people of Reuben and the people of Gad called the altar witness for, they said, it is a witness between us that the Lord is God. We've been tracking these in the book of Joshua. Um, now that they have a land and a home, they erect these monuments or these rock piles. And this is, the, this is the most latest one. They wanted something to exist in the land so that when people looked at it, they would remember what happened with the East and the West, that this was a united people. But even more than that, you, you see that you see it's when they talk about what the name of the altar is and why they did it, they don't, they don't give us the specific history. They say, this is a witness between us that the Lord is God. It is something to remember what he's done. That's our hope for that, that monument just outside of the doors here, that when you see it, you remember the things God has done in our little church. All right, let's close with this. What kind of God is God? So, um, I said earlier, God cares about the big picture. It's so big that you will live and die and live your whole life and only have experienced a, a, a fraction of what God is doing in the world. Um, but God also is a God who cares about details and the small things. So I'll end with just kind of an interesting, an interesting thing that God does. So we have a nation now. Call it, it's, it's a little bit like a country with some states, 12 different states, sort of. It's like that. Um, we, we don't, we have some laws that Moses gave us, but what do we do um, with immigration? What do we do with um, people who uh, have committed a crime possibly, but haven't been tried yet? God uh, commands that there be six cities called the cities of refuge. And what these are is, is basically if you're guilty of manslaughter, I think the example in the Bible is if you're cutting wood out in the wilderness and the ax head falls off and you kill a guy, right? In our, we have a term for that in our, in our country. It's manslaughter. You won't be punished if it was accidental. You weren't acting recklessly. It's not murder. But the problem is in ancient times, try using that logic with the family of the person who just died, right? What tended to happen is anytime somebody dies, they just would take vengeance on them, whether it was manslaughter or murder. So God, it's strange that he would highlight that issue, but he does say, I care for the people in my land and I want things to be done well and justly. So there will be six cities of refuge where if you're guilty of manslaughter, you can flee to these cities and they will give you a trial. They will hear out your case. And the, the avenger of blood, when he comes at the city gate, cannot enter because we will protect you. And then a little bit later, if you read about these cities of refuge, this is also where if you were an immigrant, if you were a Gentile that wasn't a Jew, didn't have any right to the land, but wanted to come and live and worship God, you could, you could find refuge in the cities of refuge. So I just want to close with this. That, that, that fact, the idea that God is, is thinking in this way, even as he's giving out these gifts, uh, really impressed me because I would not have thought of that. God is a God of the big picture and a God of the details. Even the person who is guilty of manslaughter, 
even the person who is a Gentile, who has no right in this, God says, there has to be a place where they can come to. We have to have cities of refuge where we can open our arms and extend mercy. So the last question, what kind of God is God? He's a merciful one. And as we've, we've kind of been playing our own little story of Joshua here, uh, we've been wandering. Uh, God's brought us to a, a building. We're remembering it with a pile of rocks. See, almost step by step, we're trying to sort of, sort of mimic this. Here's the last one that I would pray for our church. And even for your home. I pray that our church would be like a city of refuge. That, that when God blessed us with this building and this collection of people, that we would all collectively look at each other and say the same thing God said, which is like, I hope this is a place where anybody can come. No matter what they've done, they can come here and hear the gospel and be loved. And that's not just the church building. That's, that's you and your home and your life too. God calls us to, to adopt his character. And when he was doing this, he was thinking of the, the great tribes, the kingly tribes, the priestly tribes. And he was also thinking of the very least of these. That's your God. And maybe you today, right now, would put yourself in that category. I'm an outsider. I don't know this church stuff. 10 chapters is way too much for me to start with, right? You, you, you may feel as though you don't have any right to any of this. You don't understand any of this. Here's the good news. Our God is a God of mercy. He is not neutral about you. He wants your love and your faith, and he is open-armed, merciful to you as a result. The only way he can do that is because he showed us mercy by giving us his son. And that's why we have a big old cross in our hallway, because we always remember we were all outsiders. We were all outside of his grace until he decided we weren't, until he decided he would show us mercy and give us refuge. Isn't that good news? Let's pray. God, thank you so much for today. Thank you for this text. It is, it is uh, difficult, um, but it is a privilege to see you walk a people through the very thing that you promised. God, my prayer is that it stirs in us a belief that you will do the exact same thing with us. We know someday we are headed to a new city, to a new heavens and a new earth, that you've promised it to us. You've even told us a little bit about what it might be. God, someday you will take us by the hand and walk us through that very city. And in a loving way, I know you will say, see, I, I told you, I promised you, not one word of mine fell. And God, our response in that day will be just to worship you. My prayer, God, is if there's anybody on the outside today, they don't know Christ, or they don't know if they know Christ, Lord, I pray they would see the awesome mercy that you extend through your son, Jesus Christ, that they would reach out to him for forgiveness and for a new name. We pray all this in Jesus' name, amen. We close with the gold cards. Just a few ways you can respond to the sermon this week. You can memorize a verse. You can read the tour of heaven in Revelation 21, 22. If you read the last two chapters of your Bible, that is God taking us by the hand and showing us what someday we will have. And then finally, identifying and sharing with someone the hill you want to take in 2024. Take a moment to fill these out. We'll close together with a song. <laughs>